Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. The other day, I was going through some pictures, thinking about things, and I came across an old picture. I saw a picture, uh, really a picture of one of the most memorable moments in my life. And that moment has really launched a thousand moments, and I think it's safe to say that without that one moment that that picture represents, then I probably wouldn't be here today. Some of you may have saw the picture. Uh, It was a picture from my ordination. I want to share it with you today, just in case you didn't have a chance to see it. That's me there, and there's Katie in the chapel of First Baptist Church of Atlanta. Of course, my pastor just celebrated his 85th birthday this past week. And so that picture there has just uh, made me think about something that I wanted to share with you today. That picture brought in my memory a moment that I want to consider with you today. I was looking at that picture having all those emotions of remembering what that day was like and really vividly remembering that day. It's one of those seminal moments in someone's life. You don't forget a moment like that. And it just made me to think of this. Who we are right now is determined by the decisions of the past and the hopes that we have in the future. And let me say that again. Who we are right now is determined by the decisions of the past as well as the hopes that we have in the future. And here's the interesting thing. We know about the past and the future while we're in the present. I don't want to get too deep because I've already lost myself in some sense, but think about that. Who we are right now is determined by the decisions of the past and the hopes of the future, but we know those things in the present. Right now, every one of us together are building our lives. That's the way that we talk, isn't it? We build our lives. Who we are is not who we will be, nor is it who we were. But in some way, all of those factors come together as we're building our life. Now, here's the truth. You only have one life. All of us together, we don't get another shot at this. We talk about second chances, and I think those kind of things come in our life. But realistically, those second chances, they don't just, you know, you don't start life over once that happens. We only get one shot at life. We better do it well. So this morning, I want to ask you, how are you living your life? Right now, as you think about in the quietness of your own soul, as you listen to the sound of my voice, how are you living your life? How are you, as you're thinking about how you're living your life, how are you determining that you are living your life as it was intended to be? What standard are you using to determine whether or not you're living it well or whether you're not living it well? But therein lies the real issue, doesn't it? Can we determine a right way and a wrong way? Is there such a thing as a right way and a wrong way? And I want to say, sure. And we can determine that in the same way that we can determine a circle from a square. In the same way that we can determine night from day. In the same way that we can determine a healthy person from a sick person. 
So today, what we get a, the privilege of do in this first Sunday in October on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, we begin a new series celebrating the Reformation. And some of you may say, well, what on earth is the Reformation? What is that? And if I were to describe the entire Protestant Reformation in a single phrase, it would be this one. Back to the Bible. What was the Protestant Reformation all about? It was all about getting back to the source. There was a certain phrase that the Reformers said themselves. They, of course, when they were speaking in the highfalutin way, talking about scholarship and scholasticism and Scripture, of course, well, you have to speak Latin because that's the only way that we used to think we could speak when we talked about the Lord was in Latin. So they would use the phrase ad fontes. And that's my southern version of Latin. I'm not really sure if it's right or wrong. You're not either. It's a dead language, so that's the best we can do. Ad fontes. What does that mean? It means back to the source. So the entire Protestant Reformation can be summed up in one word. It is back to the source. And what is the source? Well, back to the Bible. But not just the Bible. It even goes beyond that. Not just to the Latin version of the Bible that the Catholics used, it goes back to the source, the Greek, the Hebrew, so that we can look at these doctrines, look at the text, and enjoy the text, delight in the text, and see how the text shapes us and how the, we are shaped by the text. And this is important because through the centuries, the church before the Protestant Reformation had seen an erosion in the Bible as the final authority. And I want to just say that I hope that we understand this right in the very beginning. The erosion of biblical authority is what started the Reformation 500 years ago. And let me say this, ladies and gentlemen, the Protestant Reformation is not over yet. Because even in this day, we are uh, eroding in our idea, the idea of the biblical authority as the final authority, infallibility of the Word of God is always in question. Thankfully, it's not in question behind this pulpit but behind many pulpits in America, it is in question. And we may take it for granted as the authority, but today we get the privilege of being here and worshiping together and not take that moment for granted where the Bible is seen as the final authority. So the Reformation entered that world where the Bible wasn't the authority and the Reformation sought to make this right. So I want us to think about something just for a minute. Let's think about the issue of authority together. What's at stake in the question of authority? If you're lost on a dangerous road, dangerous road, and you come to a fork, one way leads to the destination that you desire. It's a safe place. It's the road not full of danger. It's the road away from danger. You're faced with a fork. One way leads this way. The other way leads to uh, it's just a loop. All it does is loop back around to the dangerous road. And so if you take this way, you're going to loop back around. You're going to loop back around. How do you determine which way to go? There has to be some way for you to make this important decision. You don't know. The stakes are too great for you to get it wrong. You don't want to consult an authority amongst many authorities. If you're going to be faced with such a perilous decision, you better make sure that you are consulting the authority so that when you're faced with this decision, the fork in the road, you'll know which way to go, the safe way and not 
the dangerous way. That's what's at stake in the issue of authority. I want to paint this as as broadly as I can and pointedly as I can. What's at stake with the issue of authority? Eternity is at stake with the issue of authority. Now, the issue of authority is not anything new to us, and it really wasn't new to the days of the Reformation. The issue of authority is as old as the Garden of Eden. Do you remember the story? The first question that was raised in the Bible is a question of doubting God's absolute authority. The serpent said to the woman, did God say? And then he says, well, God didn't really mean what he said. You don't have to trust him. And you and I can testify today because of the hurt and the pain and the grief and the desperation and the despair that has entered the world because of one man's sin, the death that has come into the world through one man's disobedience. The earth has felt the consequences of that day where the authority of God was usurped ever since. hope that you're here today to delight in the Word, because that's what we're going to do. We do this every Sunday, but this Sunday, I hope, is, is one where we appreciate what we do a little bit more. I want you to take your Bible this morning. Hopefully you have your Bible. If not, there's a pew Bible right in front of you, and we're going to be towards the back of the Bible today. You're going to have to leave Matthew for just a moment. We're going to leave for just a few moments in Matthew, and I know your Bible's going to probably already open up to Matthew, but just, just go ahead forward a little bit to go to Second Peter. Go to Second Peter Chapter 1, and I want us to see together the importance of authority. Now, Second Peter, of course, is written by, can you guess who it is? Hey, you got it. It's written by Peter. That's exactly right. Peter's writing to the church. Peter is facing the end of his life, and he's writing for a specific reason. He's writing to encourage the church. And what I want us to see is how he's writing and how he grounds everything that he writes. So let's begin reading Second Peter chapter. One, and let's look at verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Teach us from your word, we pray, so that we may see the Son exalted in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that passage of Scripture is one of the most significant passages in all of the passages. When you say, why is that? I thought that every word was inspired. It is. But this passage gives us a framework and a guide from which we can understand all of Scripture. Peter's writing to this group of Christians and he's encouraging them, don't abandon Scripture. 
So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Two points this morning from this text. And we could preach this text a thousand different ways, but I want to look at it under this lens today and answer this question. What happens when we abandon Scripture? Now let's go ahead and get it right this morning. Let's go ahead and before we get the two points on the screen and before you write them down in your notes, let's go ahead and all agree together, nobody wants to abandon Scripture. Can I get an amen? All right, good. We're on good ground this morning. What happens when we abandon Scripture? Number one, when we abandon Scripture, we lose our firm foundation. When we enter the world of Scripture, what are we doing when we read the Bible? Listen to me carefully. When we read the Bible, we enter a way to view the world. The Bible is God's true picture of reality. Now, I know that the discipline of our heart is to make the way that we see the world this way. You know me. I don't propose that you read the Bible this way. I propose that you read the Bible this way. That you see the world through the lens that the Bible is teaching us to see. So when we enter the world of Scripture, we enter the way to view the world. Now, the worldview of Scripture, it's a beautiful worldview. It really is. It's a breathtaking landscape because it's really the true way it tells us that the blue is blue that the reds that we see are red what's that color over there well it's orange how did you know that it's orange because the bible says that it's orange this book is the true story of the whole world and my what a worldview it's gorgeous it's like nothing we've ever seen it's like nothing this world has ever seen But thankfully, it's like something this world will see one day. Think with me just for a minute. Are you wanting purpose? You can find it here. Are you wanting hope? You can find it here. Do you need forgiveness? It's right here. Do you need joy? What about happiness? It's all right here. What about love? Maybe you need love. It's not only spoken of here. It's demonstrated immeasurably. This is a beautiful worldview that we get to have. And I want to show you. Let's begin reading at verse 1 of Second Peter, just so we can see how we get to verse 16. Because as we're reading the Bible, one of the things that I want to teach you as I'm your pastor, and we preach at Oxford Baptist Church verse by verse, line by line, book by book. I want you to see the context. Because you know why I preach the way that I preach? Listen carefully. I am not the authority. This is the authority. So how do you know what I say is right or wrong? You test everything by thus saith the Lord. So let me show you in the Bible how we get to verse 16. And let me just say that I'm so excited. This is an amazing journey. I hope that I have time today to preach all that I have in my notes because it's beautiful. All right, buckle up. Here we go. Let's read verse 1. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And let me just stop and say, I'm fighting back talking. All right, let's keep going. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His 
precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be at any time to recall these things. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. All of these truths there, let me just summarize what we just read by this statement. You have to forgive me for my brevity, but time won't allow me. All of the truths that we just read are ours in Christ Jesus. They're yours if you know Christ. Peter is an apostle. And you see what he's doing? Why is he writing? He's writing because he's concerned about his fellow followers of Christ. And his concern for them is elevated because, well, he's at the end of his life. Peter's going to die soon. And he knows it. And as he's facing death, what's he doing? He's working to ensure the progress of the gospel. As Peter's facing death, what's he doing? He's giving up. He's retiring. No, no, none of those things. He's working diligently to ensure the progress of the gospel. This is a man who has consumed Christ. Christ always, it's been my estimation that he always has this kind of effect on people. Christ is someone so great that he's worth a thousand lifetimes. And I can testify before you in the world that if I had a thousand lives, I'd get every one of them to Jesus. Because He is worth that and so many more. Peter writes to ensure the progress of the gospel and death is coming for Peter, but he knows that even though his death is coming, that doesn't mean the end of the gospel. The end for him may be coming, but that doesn't mean the gospel has to cease. The gospel has to go on. There is this succession that must be carried along. And what is that succession? Is it a succession of popes and priests? No. It's a succession of a message. It's an apostolic message. It's the message of the prophets. It's the message of the apostles. And let me just say this. We need that message 
to continue today. We need to carry along the gospel of Jesus Christ because only this message is the hope of the entire world. So we have to carry that forward. We are the caretakers. We are the stewards of the mysteries of the gospel of grace. Your neighbors, your relatives, your family, this church. We need to ensure the progress of the gospel. I want you to look closer at verses 12 through 15. Peter is writing so affectionately. And I hope that you can hear it when you, you know, oftentimes we can come to Scripture and we can just start reading and, you know, we're not really sure what we're reading or just, you know, we're confused or whatever, so we just read it just out of habit. But I hope that when you read Scripture, you can hear the voice of God because that's what you're doing. When you read Scripture, you are listening to hear the voice of God speak. You don't go under some tree to have God speak to you. You don't look in the sky to have Him speak to you. You may get stung by a bee and have the wrong message, you know. We want to know, make sure that what we're hearing is from God. And how do you do that? You listen to what He said. And I hope that you can hear the affection. He's not distantly concerned. His concern for the church is deeply rooted. It's deeply personal. Do you see this word in verse 12? I want you to mark it in your Bible. Do you see the word... Firmly established. Something like that. Maybe your version says, firmly established. Now, that's an interesting word choice for Peter. Remember who Peter is? Peter's the rock. This is Peter, the rock. In the Gospels, though, we read that Peter is anything but a rock. Oftentimes in the Gospels, he's a goofball. He gets it wrong a lot of times. He just he messes up. He had his moments where he shone and others where he just blew it and Jesus at one time, if you remember, He even called Him Satan. So Peter is sort of this mixed bag. But perhaps Peter's greatest failure, if you remember, was a moment around a campfire when Jesus was on trial facing crucifixion. Peter denied Jesus before a company of others. He didn't do it just once. He did it three times. Peter, his greatest blunder, his greatest failure, was when he denied Jesus, three times. Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. But you know what Jesus also did? Jesus also assured Peter by telling Peter that I have prayed for you. You remember what Jesus said in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32? Listen to what Jesus said. But I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, listen to this last phrase, when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. You see that word strengthen? Guess what word it is? It's the same word that Peter used here in verse 12. The same one that Jesus used. Firmly establish. This is Peter carrying out his ministry that Jesus taught him. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Firmly establish your brothers. Now Peter was a man who knew what it was like to waver. He knew what it was like to blow it. So when Peter writes, know who's writing to us. It was a man who blew it at one time. It was a man who was far from perfect. He was a man who uh, blew it. So he writes to strengthen us. And when Peter writes it, it means so much. Because we know Peter. Because Peter was a man who was in the midst of it and, and blew it. He would say something like, maybe, I blew it, guys. I blew it right in front of him. He was looking at me and I blew it. I felt the shame. 
But I've also felt the joy that comes from forgiveness. I've also felt His compassionate love reaching to me when I didn't deserve it. I want to ask you a question. Which emotion do you think Peter remembered the most? Was it the shame? Was it the regret? Or was it the joy that came from forgiveness? You know, I think it was. I think that what Peter remembered most was the joy that came from forgiveness. This is why he could say something earlier in the first letter of Peter when he wrote one of my favorite verses. He looks at this church and he tells the church in 1 Peter 1, he says, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. And though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him with and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith salvation of your soul. I think Peter remembered grace the most. The ministry of strengthening is the reason that Peter writes. It undergirds everything that he's doing. He's writing to firmly establish and to strengthen the churches. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, he uses this word. Listen to it. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and here it is, establish you. It's the same Greek word in 2 Peter 1.12. Establish you. And he uses a similar word at the end of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3.17 You therefore, beloved, at the end of 2 Peter, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own, here it is, your own stability. This strengthening of the churches, it's, it's what Peter's concerned about. He wants to make sure that the churches, as he's going to die off, He wants the truth of God to continue marching on. And so, what's his tactic to face his concerns? What's Peter going to do about all the wavering that could be? And here's the point of the message. His tactic is to point them to Scripture. Look at verse 15 of 2 Peter 1. I will make every effort, he says, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, what effort? Is Peter going to do so that after he's gone, we'll be able to recall all these things? You know what Peter's going to do? Not only is he writing 1 Peter, not only is he writing 2 Peter, but you know what else he's writing? He's writing a gospel. Yeah. Did you know that? You have a gospel in your Bible. One of the four gospels. What are they again? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You say, I didn't hear anything about Peter there. One of those gospels is Peter's. You know which one it is? It's Mark. Well, you say, wait a minute, I thought that Mark wrote Mark. He did. But Mark was in Rome the same time that Peter was in Rome. And so Mark is writing his gospel under the direction of the apostle Peter. So I believe, and this is contested, and we all don't agree as scholars, but I can say that I think that when Peter's writing verse 15, he's making every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things. He's talking about the gospel of Mark. He's telling the church, I'm working on it right now. So that you will see who Jesus is. He's going to write it down. Where does He write it down? The Gospel of Mark. Well, what does the Gospel of Mark do? The Gospel of Mark, written by Mark under Peter's instruction, what does He do? If you read the Gospel of Mark, it presents not 
just the life and ministry of Jesus. It doesn't just paint a picture of Jesus and say, okay, for breakfast this day, he had two fish and scrambled eggs. And then the next day, he, he stumped his toe, and so we had to take a break. And the next day, he caught whatever. He doesn't, that's not the way the gospel's written. It's not for that purpose. It is history, but it's not simply to tell us the history. He wants to not just tell us the life and ministry of Jesus, but he wants to cast the real historical Jesus in a certain light. And what is that light that Mark seeks to present Jesus? What is that light that the New Testament seeks to present Jesus in? It's Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, the apostolic witness is Jesus according to Scripture. This is the Jesus that saves. No other Jesus. Why did Peter write it down? He tells us, look, he says that he wants us to stir us up by way of reminder. He wants us to remember these things. To show us these things. And look at that phrase there. Stir you up by way of reminder in verse 13. You see that word? That's another one of those beautiful phrases in the Greek. You know what it is? It's, it's a phrase that's associated with sleeping. Stir up. Now, some of you don't know what a big deal sleeping is, but for Katie and I, who are parents of three small children, one who just turned one, we understand what a great life we used to have before kids of sleeping. We took it for granted. But you know, my wife and I, we haven't had a solid night's sleep. And, you know, we leave the kids, you know, with somebody else saying, oh, we're going to sleep. No, doesn't happen. Because we wake up worried about the kids. Some of you, I know, haven't had a night's sleep in 40 years. I understand. You're not encouraging me when you tell me those stories, but I understand. But this word, stir up, it's a phrase associated with sleep. And when Katie and I moved into the house that we're in now, there's a few things that we determined that we needed to do. One of those things was we needed a WD-40 the doors. Because when we go in to check on the babies, we don't need a squeaky hinge to sabotage our sneaking. That's the last thing. We're doing our diligence to be quiet, and then you hear this door squeak. Hello, child, I'm just coming in to check on you. Go back to sleep. No, that doesn't happen. They're awake, time for snacks, whatever else. We don't want to stir the baby. And by the way, you should have seen these new parents as we had... Our new little baby girl, Adelie, there was a spot in the parsonage in the old church. There was a spot on the floor that we didn't know about until we had our daughter, our sleeping baby, in our room. And it was right there as you enter the door. And you should have seen these two Olympic gymnasts doing our best to do what we could to make sure that we are not going to hit that spot. We're not going to disturb the baby. We're not going to stir up the baby. And Peter is writing these things so that instead of not disturbing us, he's writing to disturb us. He's writing to stir up our emotions so that our affections will be aroused and our hearts will be attuned to the grace of God. And let me just say this. The only way that we can be stirred in our affections for Christ, listen to me carefully, the only way that we can be stirred in our affections for Christ is through Scripture. Scripture. Without Scripture, we don't know Christ. And if we don't know Christ, we don't know anything. Because Jesus says He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that brings us to our second point of consideration this morning when we abandon Scripture. Not only do we abandon our firm foundation, when we abandon Scripture, we abandon Jesus. Don't miss the context of 16 through 21. The immediate context is 12 through 15. Peter wants to stir us up. And how is it that he stirs us up? He 
reminds us of something. And what does He remind us of? Scripture. Why talk about Scripture? Here's the reason. Because Scripture reveals Christ. Every page of your Bible whispers a name. You know what that name is? It's not Andy. It's Jesus. Every page of your Bible whispers the name of Jesus. Let me just read this again. Don't miss this. I know that your Bible, like mine, has a little subtitle. Mine says, uh, Christ, glory, and the prophetic word. That's great. That's not original. That's not what Peter intended to write there. That number 16 was not even there originally. So let's go back at Fontes. Let's go back to the sources. Listen, let's read it as it flowed originally. Verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then look at what he says in verse 20. He gets all the way there in verse 20. Knowing this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. What's he talking about? He's talking about Scripture. So why on earth do we need to tie our lives to Scripture? And I'm going to say this again. Because without Scripture... We don't know Jesus. There are many Jesuses in the world. You're probably going to hear about them as we enter Christmas. You're going to wonder about the virgin birth and how that could scientifically never happen. As we see every Easter special, you know, the tomb of Jesus. He's really not alive. And all there's all kind of Jesuses in the world. But listen, there is only one Jesus of Scripture. There are many mythological pictures of Jesus. But listen, Peter seeks to say that the the, the critics are accusing Christianity of mythology. And this is why he says we didn't follow cleverly desired myths. But look at what Peter does. He flips the narrative and he says, no, no, we're not the ones mythologizing. Those that say Christ didn't rise from the dead, they're the ones telling us mythology. But there's only one Jesus who saves. And so that begs the question, How do you, when someone knocks on your door, how do you, when the preacher stands up and preaches, how do you know the saving Jesus from any other Jesus? And there's only one answer for that question. Scripture. Not your interpretation of Scripture. But listen, that's not up to you. It wasn't produced by the will of man, verse 21. Not your interpretation of Scripture. Which Jesus is right? Scripture is the authority. So what does that mean for us? It means that if our Jesus doesn't match Scripture, then you know what we have to do? We have to abandon our Jesus. Now, you don't have to. You're a person with a free will. You don't have to. But if you want the way, the truth, and the life, then you will abandon your Jesus if your Jesus contradicts the scriptural Jesus. This is why we come to church. I know it's... it's uh, we can get in the habit of coming for different reasons and matters, but and all of those things are important, like seeing family, seeing friends, and you know, hearing some good singing and good preaching. All those things are important. But listen, we come to church for really one underlying reason. You know what that is? It's not to eat chicken and enjoy one another's presence, although that's good. I love it. Listen, some of y'all's desserts, thank the Lord for them. But that's not the reason that we come. The underlying reason that we come is so we want to know Jesus. Not just any Jesus. We want to know this Jesus. Because there's salvation in no one else. There is only one name given under heaven by which we must 
be saved. Do you see what Peter's doing? He's grounding our experience in Scripture. And by the way, if we have an experience, which I know all of us have had an experience, all of those experiences that we have are secondary to Scripture. All of those experiences that we have, how do we know whether or not it was a true experience or, you know, just an upset stomach? How do we know the difference? Scripture. How do we know? Scripture. So we need to start chasing something as a people of God. And it's not an experience. Although those things are important, and I believe that they come, we need to chase after the Word of God and find the God of the Scriptures. So Peter seeks to ground us in Scripture. Why is that? He had first-hand experience. And he knew that left to his own self, he would get it wrong. Peter didn't trust his experience. He'd been there. He'd been through the school of hard knocks, gotten a t-shirt, got all the rest. And he knew that left to his own experience, he'd get it wrong. Now listen closely to me. Let's think back to Peter's best moment. Do you remember what that was? Peter's best moment was when he confessed Christ and got his new name at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is saying, who do men say that I am? Peter says to Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then listen to what Jesus says to him. Listen. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now listen. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now go back to that phrase, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You know what Jesus is saying? He said, Peter, you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. Not even because Jesus was standing right in front of you. That's what that phrase means. He's not talking about His own will. Jesus is saying, me standing here before you in the flesh, that's not how you knew that was the right answer. The Father revealed it. Peter heard it. Seeing isn't believing. In the Bible, hearing is believing. Because what happens just in a few verses later, in verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 16, Jesus has to call Peter Satan. And that's a big deal. For the Son of God to look at you and call you Satan? Don't take that lightly. And then in the next chapter, Peter is up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is what he's talking about here when he was on the mountain and bore witness to the majestic glory and he heard the voice come from Jesus. Do you remember why Peter heard the voice? It's because he was interrupted. Peter gets up and he said, man, this is great. Look, here's Moses, here's Elijah, here's Jesus. Man, he's in his ecstatic state of emotionality. He's saying, man, this is fantastic. I love this. I'm here. You're here. Jesus, let's build three tents Let's start the revolution now. And then the voice of heaven of the Father interrupts and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Don't conjure up in your mind some idea. Submit your thought and take it captive to Christ. Listen to Him. You know what all those things are there to tell us? You know what Peter's trying to tell us here? Listen closely to your pastor. You cannot know Jesus apart from Scripture. Can't. This is why Peter says that you and I are in even a better position than he was. He's saying, hey guys, you don't have to make the same mistakes that I did because I was wandering around, bumbling. I didn't know until I knew. And now I know. And you can too. 
after the cross, after the resurrection, after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, everything changed. Now listen to me. Not that the message changed. It wasn't as if the message wasn't there before. It's just that we didn't know the message. We had all of these echoes and clues, but we didn't know what we were looking at. We had nothing to tie them all together. And there's one passage in Scripture that when I first read it, it seems so mystical and mysterious in Luke 24. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to two of His disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is what the text says. The text says in Luke 24, the eyes of them were kept from recognizing Him. So what's going on? Jesus is the resurrected Christ. He's appearing to two of His disciples. And the eyes of them were kept from recognizing Him. Why on earth did Jesus keep them from recognizing Him? You know why? So that He could point them to Scripture. Flesh and blood was right in front of them. But flesh and blood doesn't reveal God. The Father does. The truth of God is revealed in the Son to the glory of the Father. Flesh and blood was right in front of them, but Jesus wants them to see Him. And you cannot see Jesus without Scripture. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says to them, He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? and enter into His glory. And then look at what Jesus does, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in the Scriptures all things that concerned Himself. Later, the Scripture says, He breaks the bread, and the eyes of them are opened. And listen to what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened the Scriptures? What's Peter trying to do? He's trying to stir us up. And how is He stirring us up? By taking us to Scripture. This is why Peter says we're in a better place. This is why he says that we have the prophetic word in verse 19 more fully confirmed. Then he says, you better pay attention to it. Do you see that? To which you will do well to pay attention. Once you see Jesus, you can't unsee Jesus. Look at verse 19. The word is more confirmed because look at the verse. Just look at the verse. The lamp has shone and the morning star is rising. What's the morning star? That's a reference from Numbers. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about the day when the Lord Jesus comes back and crushes His enemies. And that's the hope of a future with God. This is why Scripture is not a matter in verse 21 of one's own interpretation. Because Scripture stands in authority over us. We Don't stand in authority over it. And listen to me carefully. When you abandon Scripture, you forfeit hope. Listen. Over the next few weeks, there is one sentence that I'm going to give you. You can write this down. That we're going to be unpacking. Over the next five weeks, here's the outlook of where we're going. And this sentence rises from the Scriptures and it's the sentence that is the bedrock of of the Reformation. It is the sentence that is the bedrock for all of my preaching. Are you ready for it? Write it down. Salvation. That is our only hope in life and death. That's what we mean by salvation. Salvation is according to the Scriptures through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. Did you see the foundation? Where's the foundation? Not experience, not something that we come up with, but something that we have received. Salvation is according to Scripture, 
is through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. This is why I labor so intensively in my study every week and up here behind this sacred desk to ground your faith not in the opinion and fables of man, not in some mythology, but to ground every bit of your hope in thus saith the Lord. So I just want to ask you this morning, humbly but assuredly, you are this morning building your life. How on earth are you building your life? Are you building your life on solid ground? Are you building your life on sinking sand? You know what this book is here? It is the inerrant, infallible authority. Don't abandon Scripture. Build your life on the firm foundation of God's Word alone. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love You. We thank You for loving us. We thank You for giving us Scripture so that by it we will know what salvation is. Father, we love You. And we praise You. And I wonder, as you're still with your head bowed and eyes closed, do you know whether or not you are living your life according to every Word of God? You're building your life right now, friend. Let me say with all the assurance that I have, you're either building your life on the solid rock of God's salvation or you're building your life on sinking sand. Maybe there's one here today that's never accepted Jesus Christ. Maybe there's one here today that has not placed their faith in the salvation that Jesus offers. Would you pray right now where you are? Would you say, God, there's no hope without you. I know that. I pray in Jesus' name that you would save me. Forgive me of my sin. All based upon what you did on the cross, forgive me. And let me start building my life on that which lasts. If you're out here today and you realize in your life that you have erected a Jesus in your own mind, it's not a saving Jesus. It's a Jesus you think will forget about your sins or whatever else. It's not a Jesus according to the Scriptures, and you know it because you wouldn't recognize Him because you don't spend enough time there. This is a call for you to repent. This is a time for you to tear down some things in your life and begin building anew on the solid rock of God's firm foundation in His Word. You need to make a decision for Jesus. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.